about about the precepts because my own thinking has been changing over some years and I thought I would share my understanding of them as as they are now because they're a little bit it's a little bit different than um, usually understood most of us come to practice for meditation and after the meditation we find a little bit of uh, Dharma talks and we we get a little sense of where the Dharma is and we hear about the precepts and mostly what we hear is that the precepts are a foundation for our practice and by our practice we think our meditation practice. Um, it becomes support for our practice. But I'm coming to think that actually it's the other way around, that our med meditation practice is a support for our uh, our ethical practice, our life in the world, our walking around life, uh, and that um, the precept practice, as I will interpret it, um, is really the fruit of the practice, and really the, the, the aim of the practice. It's the raft. The Buddha talks about uh, a raft. Um, I thought I would read his description of his teachings. Because often we think of the teachings as the teachings about meditation. But I'm, I think they're more about, uh, about our walking around day to day. I shall show you amongst the teachings similitude to a raft <coughs> as having the purpose of crossing over, not the purpose of being clung to. Suppose, monks, there is a man journeying on a road and he sees a vast expanse of water of which this shore is perilous and fearful, while the other shore is safe and free from danger. But there's no boat for crossing, nor is there a bridge for going over from this side to the other. So the man thinks, suppose I gather reeds, <coughs> sticks, branches, and foliage, and bind them into a raft. Now that man collects reeds, sticks, branches, and foliage, and binds them into a raft, and carried by the raft, laboring with hands and feet, he safely crosses over to the other shore. Having crossed and arrived at the other shore, he thinks, this raft indeed has been very helpful to me. Carried by it, laboring with hands and feet, I got safely across to the other shore. Should I not lift this raft on my head or put it on my shoulders and go where I like? What do you think about it, monks? Will this man, will this man by acting thus do what should be done with a raft? This part of, it always reminds me of Socrates and no Lord. <laughs> um, how then, monks, would he, um, would he be doing what ought to be done with the raft? Here, having got across and arrived at the other side, the man thinks, this raft indeed has been very helpful to me, carried by it, laboring with hands and feet. I got safely across to the other shore. Should I not pull it up now on the dry land or let it float in the water and then go as I please? By acting thus, monks, would that man do what should be done with the raft? In this way, the teachings similitude to a raft having the purpose of crossing over, not the purpose of being clung to. Sometimes it's kind of difficult to see ethical practice as the heart of the practice, because particularly precept practice, because um, we're, we're pretty heavily conditioned with what I think of as commandment consciousness. You know? um, the precepts are not too far from them, really. I mean, there's, there's four commandments there that go, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness. It sounds pretty much like, don't kill, don't steal. <laughs> Sounds pretty much like so. There's a there's a. Um, it's it's hard to see them as anything as a mean except as a means to an end to being good or to earning merit or for behaving in a way that makes our life less turbulent so that our meditation practice can proceed. But but this kind of Precept practice is just rule following, um, and I think there are 
there are a number of different levels to um, precepts that I, I would like to explore. You know, we we talk about um, the the precepts being uh, are derived from the eightfold path, from right speech, right action, and right livelihood, which I take to mean all the time. You know, when you walk, and I sort of like. That the phrase in the Metta Sutta, whether standing, walking, seated, or lying down, if you want to get real technically legalese over, you can say, well, what about if I'm leaning over? <laughs> or resting against a wall, what about then what, you know? But I think basically it's all the time, right, right speech, right action, right livelihood is how you live. Here's a, here's a, uh, Another piece from the early early suttas, where a follower of the Buddha is listening to another, probably sitting in the woods somewhere, listening to another teacher, who says, I describe an individual endowed with four qualities as being consummate in what is skillful, foremost in what is skillful, and invincible contemplative attained to the highest attainments. Which four? There is the case where he does no evil action with his body, speaks no evil speech, resolves on no evil resolve, and maintains himself with no evil means of livelihood. An individual endowed with these four qualities I designate as being consummate in what is skillful and invincible contemplative attained to the highest attainments. Well, I was reading along and I thought, well, that sounds like something the Buddha would agree with. Right? This, yeah? Was it just me? <laughs> but no. So his follower goes to the Buddha and tells him what the guy says, and he says, um, well, in this case, then according to this teacher's words, a stupid baby boy lying on his back is consummate in what is skillful foremost, in what is skillful, invincible, an invincible contemplative attained to the highest teachings. I do not designate such an individual as an invincible content, contemplative, rather, he stands on the same level as a stupid baby boy lying on his back. We'll get back to what the Buddha does think. So it's not just, it's not just simple rule following. You know, we can talk about uh, the different levels of understanding of the precepts. So, for example, don't steal. You know, don't steal is an instruction you give to a child. You know, don't kill probably if you're rehabilitating, you know, child soldiers. You start with don't kill and don't steal. But these are fairly simple formulations. In, in the tradition, the word, the Pali word is adinadana, which is, which is translated as not taking what's not freely given. Dana is to give, and adana, not give. Adinadana is not take what's not given. And that gets more to an intentional level with, uh, with the, I get the sense that the idea is to uh, restrain greed, Restrain grasping and, you know, um, monastics have to be offered food before they can, they can't just set it out and leave it and expect them to come in and take it. They have to be formally offered. Um, but it's not just material things. Do you take one's time, someone's time? My wife is often working with the computer on her, you know, writing and do I take her attention? without, you know, I mean, without freely. So we're talking about a whole attitude towards, uh, but I think even at a deeper level, it's don't grasp. Just don't, just don't grasp um, or, or, or push away. Um, we're talking about the, at the deepest levels, this precept practice is aiming at the impulses of tanha, of craving. Um, and so, you know, ethical practice is about um, how, how to best put the end, an end to suffering in this situation. 
think um, to get a clearer picture of how I'm relating this to the to the uh, eightfold path and and the Buddhist teaching, I'd like to do a, a quick excursion through the four truths because the four truths are the the way in which the Buddha articulates his insight into the origins of uh, suffering and dissatisfaction and the, the problems we have with life. You know, he, he, most of you are familiar with the formula. Uh, it came to be known later as the, the noble truths, but initially it was just, this is such as suffering, such as the origin, such the cessation, and such the path. And suffering, that first truth or first teaching, he doesn't write a definition there. It's not a definition. He lists particular experiences that we encounter. So the list is, starts with birth, which we all started with no, pretty much. Aging. You know, it's sort of aging on automatic pilot. We, you know, sickness, you know, happens and and death, dying, pain. You got a body, pain, sorrow, emotional pain, distress, lamentation and despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want and losing what you cherish. This is the list of, of unsatisfactory things about, about life. I mean, we would scratch them off the dance card if we could, right? Um, these are the unpleasant, the unpleasant experiences that, that come along with life and there's not much, we don't have much control over them. We didn't order them up. We didn't order life up in the beginning. Most of us just showed up here. Anybody in on the planning? <laughs> just sort of happened, you know. Um, and so this is, life includes certainly the beautiful moments and the joyful moments, but it's, it's cluttered with this other stuff. And this is basically an un unpleasant experience. The second of the teachings is pretty interesting. The second of the teachings is that the origin of suffering, or dukkha, the Buddha's word is dukkha, which re refers to the whole spectrum of unsatisfactory experience from minor irritation to loathing and rage and... Um, anger. And the Buddha's word is for, for this is uh, tanha, and the word literally means thirst. And the, the Buddha describes it from a subjective, from the subjective point of view. We translate the word often as craving. Sometimes it's glossed as desire, but that's really broad. In Pali, the language that the Buddha's teachings are preserved in, there are um, I think there are 25 different words that we just gloss as desire. So it's not, but it's a, a kind of, it's literally thirst. We don't feel we have any control over it. It's just, it's there, and there are three kinds of, uh, of this tanha. There's, there's bhava tanha, which is classically described as the desire to become, kama tanha, for ple pleasant experience. Not so much a particular pleasant experience, but we want our experience to be pleasant overall. We, wanted to, we don't need a particular, but we want our experience, and then we want the unpleasant stuff to go away. I've been think, I was thinking about this the other day, and it occurred to me, you know, if you look at the history of human evolution and civilization, what have we managed to accomplish for ourselves? We live longer, and we live more comfortably. And we've gotten rid of some of the, you know, 
smallpox and guinea worm and polio and the things that, right? Kamatanha, bhavatanha, vibhavatanha. It's, it's um, sometimes difficult to get a hold on of it because it's a subjective thing. It's hard to talk about subjective things when you say cars love shell. What does love mean? You, know, you sort of lose track of the words that refer to interior states. So I've started thinking of this um, teaching in terms of evolutionary biology. Because our, our organisms, our, our bodies, uh, come into this world um, at the present leading edge of, um, boy, an evolutionary chain of which any ancestors who didn't care about survival probably didn't last long enough to be ancestors, you know. Uh, from from the from the single cells, so every one of our cells wants to survive and reproduce. We're not, you know, when puberty kicks in, we think it's us, but it's just the chemistry, you know. Um, we we experience this as ambition, wanting to be something in the future, to become. To be, it's it's part of it's part of the package. It comes with us, and not only that, we want it pleasant. We want it pleasant because pleasantness usually is is helpful. That's how we tell the difference between what's good for us and what's what's not pleasant. We want our experience pleasant, and we want to get rid of the unpleasant stuff. This is part of the evolutionary package that we find ourselves living out. And when those, you can call them um, proclivities or dispositions, uh, the Buddha called them underlying tendencies, when they encounter the unpleasantness of birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, da-da-da-da-da, not getting what we want, losing what we cherish, we get a a third thing, which is dukkha. So, the, an, a sad experience may become worse. We can make it worse. We add on to it. The, the aversion to what's happening, the aversion to getting older, you know? I mean, the culture doesn't want to get older. You might have noticed bits of it in yourself. You know, um, there's, you know, we, we don't want this to end, you know. And so we've, we, historically, culturally, we've, we've lengthened our lives and we fantasize about heaven or multiple lifetimes or something. Um, we resist the unpleasantness. And this is a deeper kind of resistance than there are different levels of wanting. So wanting a boat, for example. If you're flipping through the pages of Yachting Magazine, wanting a boat would be really nice to have a boat. Some of those boats are really nice. I like boats. <laughs> but wanting a boat when you've fallen off the back of a boat as you're crossing the Molokai Strait and the boat is sailing away is a different kind of wanting a boat. So at different levels. So tanha, this deeper level, is, is organ, it's at the level of the organism. It's not, it's not superficial. It's not like looking at the dessert menu and saying, should I have the creme brulee or the chocolate brownie? It's looking at the helicopter dropping the relief food and, and wanting to be positioned so you can get some of it. It's a, it's a deeper... This tanha is, we don't want our experience unpleasant. We want to make that go away. And we add to what's already there, what's already unpleasant, we add another level of unpleasantness. This is the dissatisfaction and suffering that the Buddha is talking about. It's what we add into the mix. And the Buddha was just incredibly clever. Because the way we try to 
make things more pleasant for ourselves, we have an image in our mind of what will make things good, what we need, you know, what, maybe, uh, maybe it would be a dove bar. <laughs> well, you know, the body throws up, the brain, you know how, how when the thoughts come bef- on their own? <laughs> so it throws up a dove bar and you go, oh, dove bar, and you head to the refrigerator or whatever. We, we, we seek a promotion. We, we want, you know, um, a partner. We want, but you know, all the things we want that we think, well, you know. And, you know, that's sort of hit or miss for most of us. You know, it's the strategy we use. Try to get what we want. Follow your dreams. You know. Um, but it's hit or miss. What the Buddha found was that the, because you can't control, you know, the, uh, this old, the old metaphor of you can shoot the arrow, but you can't control where it lands because there's wind and things intervene. You just never know. But the Buddha found that if we take out of the mix the, the tanha, the, all the shit that we add into the mix, if we take that off the table, everything gets better. I mean, it may not be world-changing, but it's what we, we can do that, and for ourselves, if we don't make it worse, it gets better, because we just don't make it worse. The third, the third truth, the third teaching, the teaching of the cessation of dukkha, is the cessation, the Buddha says, <laughs> the text is clear anyway, says, is the cessation of that craving. It's the cessation of tanha. It's not that pain goes away or sadness goes away or that you get what you want all the time or, you know, or that you want what you get. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. What if that's Donald Trump? <laughs> Pardon me. I, I, I couldn't. Ah, well. <laughs> so the cessation of the cessation of tanha, you know, it requires that we recognize it, and that seems to me to be the 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 whole function of our meditation practice is to learn how to recognize those impulses, tanha and its products, when they arise in ourselves, and then we can just step back. As the officer said, nothing to see here, just move right along. Step back from that desire. Recognize and abandon. Now, get in on it early. I have a... And this is the role of mindfulness in our daily life, to be able to recognize that. I have a, a dog who's, um, she, she's almost a year and a half, but she's a lab and she's still a puppy. And um, I like to work with, with my dogs, and so my dogs are pretty well trained. And I walk with her and she just walks right there and it's very nice. We were walking along about uh, oh, a couple of weeks ago and we were about a half a block behind a couple that was walking their little dog. And my dog starts, first she starts to bounce up and down, you know, and then she's, and then she's really bouncing and the tail's wagging and she's starting to pull and then she's barking. And I have to turn around and say, knock it off. And she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm lucky she does do that. <laughs> but if I'd gotten in when she's just started to bounce, it would have been a lot easier. I could have just gone, shh, cool it, whatever, stop. Uh, could have been a, a relatively gentler kind of, of a response. And so if we can notice this craving, we can notice it showing up early on. Um, well, then we have a chance to, to, to not get sucked in. We, um, 
we can do mindfulness of breathing. And we can notice, we can know whether our breath is coming in or going out. We might have some difficulty trying to describe the difference in the sensations if we wanted to write down what's the difference between the feeling of the in-breath and the out-breath. And yet we know it, we can know it directly. What is it, what is it like to experience hunger? What are the feelings of hunger? Boy, usually as soon as there's hunger, we head for the fridge. You know, or we're proceeding in the direction of food. It's like when you, you know, what's it like to want to scratch an itch? Well, if you're sitting and you practice not scratching, you can see some. What if you don't? I've always thought that the, the practice, uh, the monastic <coughs> practice of not eating after noon gave the monastics a chance every day to experience organism-based want. can experience that and learn to recognize it, and then do you respond to it? Do we have any freedom in regard to those compulsions, desires, obsessions? What about with tanha? Uh, the, the, the deep wanting, the wanting our experience to be pleasant. Not just to want a pleasant experience, but you know, we don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I make myself unhappy today? We just don't. We're built to want to make ourselves. And then when things don't go our way, crankiness ensues. And the Eightfold Path, well, this is the Buddha's description of how to live without taking tanha's bait. Because tanha shows up in our mind as bait. It's what we want. <coughs> Each of the elements of the path, so it, you know, for me, the, the Eightfold Path, it's, that's the whole program. Each of the elements of the path exist for the purpose of attenuating dukkha by by helping us not fall for tanha. So we're just left with the unpleasantness of that, the first truth, and we don't make it worse. So right understanding, the word right actually, the right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right intention, right <coughs> mindfulness, and right concentration. The word right is sama, right view, samaditi, right. Sama is translated as right, sometimes as wise. On the, on the drum up here, it's translated as wise, sometimes as skillful. But the idea is that this is the understanding, the view, the understanding that enables you to live without dukkha. Right intention are the intentions and, and actually, well, right intention are the intentions that let you live without dukkha. The, classically, the intention is, right intention, renunciation. Uh, you know, abandon dukkha. Don't fall for it. Just let it be. The other part, the positive part of the Brahma Vihara is to cultivate those the states of joy and friendliness and compassion, equanimity. So right intention has to do with, with the relationship to tanha. Right speech and action, livelihood, these, this is the heart of our ethical engagement, the way we, we live in the world. Living in the world without making things worse without adding. There's an interesting, one of, the, one of the words that is translated as underlying tendency, asava, sometimes it's translated as uh, defilement or defilement. 
Um, the word uh, in, in the, the Pali uh, means effluent. It's the stuff that's leaking out of us. And the word naroda, which is the word for the third truth, the cessation, that we translate as cessation, means to stop leaking. Stop leaking tanha out into the world. Stop leaking our own craving, our own neediness, our own suffering. Right, effort, of course, is classically it's described as cultivating the wholesome, sustaining the wholesome that's present, abandoning the unwholesome that's present, and re- restraining the unwholesome from which is an awful lot of words to say, <laughs> you know, pretty much it's the effort to not take tanha's bait. To be able to sit still when the feeling is reach for that doubt bar. I got doubt bars, I'm I'm <laughs> I I can't help it. And they package them wrong too. They really, it's really nasty. Because they put three in a box. <laughs> really? No, this is, I'm sure that they thought of this. It's three in a box, so you eat the first one, and then when you eat the second one, you know there's only one left, so the next time you won't be satisfied with just the one. So you better eat that one, too. <laughs> Nobody else? Okay. So, Yeah. I, I could do that, but it would be wrong. <laughs> so right effort is the effort, the effort to walk on by, to not, to not jump on purchasing bars. It's not about any one thing. <laughs> But you do have a point. <laughs> Still. And right, right mindfulness and right concentration are, sometimes we think of them as different, and people say, I do mindfulness meditation, I do jhana practice. Achan Cha held up a pen and he said, meditation is this, this end is mindfulness, this end is concentration. You know, it's you need some stability to the mindfulness or it doesn't it's just monkey mind and you need some mindful awareness in order to be able to keep to know when the mind is drifting so you need both and the mindfulness practice right mindfulness you can be aware of the color of the rug we can be aware of the breathing we can be aware of pleasant and unpleasant these are the foundations of mindfulness <coughs> But right mindfulness is the mindfulness of tanha, so we can recognize tanha when we see it, when it shows up. And we know, because often we just don't even recognize. We just fall right into line. And identify with it. We say, I am hungry, when really what's happening is blood sugars are low and there's some sort of sensation in the body and hunger and we go, I'm hungry. We're on board. I got to get something to eat. That'll, that'll carry me over. So, so the, the meditation practice is, is a practice in learning how to recognize you know, what will make things worse. We can't recognize it. We can't do anything about it. And we just follow right along with, you know, if it, if it go with the flow. You know. The Buddha described his teachings as against the stream. I think that Southern California, there's the Dharma punks people in Southern California, they're against the stream. They use that as the because, but it's against the stream, not in the sense of against the culture, it's against our internal, the organism's own programming, sort of the firmware. 
And in this, in this situation, the only thing that, you know, what is the default intention? Default intention is tanha. Make it pleasant. You know, carry me into the future. Get rid of the obstacles. That's the default. And the only thing that can, you know, overcome the condition, that condition, is understanding. Right understanding. Seeing clearly just how things are. And recognizing... um, how problematic it is to seek our happiness in chasing dreams, despite the cultural uh, So if we want to revisit the precepts in this light, you know, there are ambiguities in the precepts, and the precepts are practices which which drill down. So you know don't don't steal. We talked about how you know, that's, that's a, an instruction for a child. Don't cross in the middle of the street is an instruction for a child. And it makes sense for a child. But pretty much all of us can navigate the street in the middle now. We figured out how to do that. We don't need that. But watch for traffic. That's helpful. You know, and pretty much, you know. I'm sorry? And for cops. And, and for cops. Do they... they they, they ticket you here? Oh, boy. Talk about a police state. <laughs> Tickets for jaywalking. You know, the first precept, which is generally rendered as don't kill, or don't, you know, don't, the word panatipata means not to strike at, which is an intentional kind of thing. Sometimes striking at is, is appropriate. Don't, you know, no false truth. Don't speak falsely. You know, if you get fundamentalist about it, you tell, you know, telling the truth becomes the end in itself. Telling the truth. I have a dear friend who works in hospice and she was caring for a a woman. They'd been together for six or seven weeks. And as it turned out, it was the day that she was to die. Uh, My friend was tending to her to her, and the woman said, I know you're a a Buddhist chaplain, but you do believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection, don't you? And Lynn said, of course. And she said, you could see this woman just relax because they become friends, and she was worried. You know, is telling the truth? You know, Nazis knock on the door. Is Anne Frank here? Well, it depends on what you mean by is. You know, um, when it doesn't work for Bill Clinton, So telling the truth, it's not just, and you can tell the truth with a hurtful intent. You know? You can be striking at, you can tell the truth, you can take something. I can can give you examples of situations where taking what's not freely given is the compassionate thing to do. Is the kind thing to do. A gun from a child. Car keys from a drunk. Freedom from someone who can't control violent behavior. Taking what's not freely given, stealing one's freedom. You know, the precepts push us to monitor what's arising in us, what our intentions are as we, as we go through the day, as we drive through traffic, as we walk down the street, interact with people. Because they have, um, you know, monitoring our intentions. Taking candy from a baby is different from taking a gun from a baby. And the difference is in the intention. The Buddha wanted us to monitor our intention. Hmm. There's a model of learning that uh, I came across. I was listening to Rick Hansen, and he, it was just a throwaway line, but it was a great model of learning that I, I went and I looked it up. It's in Wikipedia, so you know it's... <laughs> but it's a four-stage a four model, and the first level is, it's kind of cleverly labeled. It's 
um, unconscious incompetence, and then you go to conscious incompetence, then conscious competence, and then unconscious competence. So unconscious incompetence is me when I was visiting a friend and they had a tennis court, and I thought, I'll go hit, I'll play some tennis. I had no idea how hard it is to get the ball in the other side of the, in the court on the other side of the net. I had no idea. Unconscious incompetence. I had no clue. And then if you take up, you know, you say, well, I don't know how to hit it. I start to become aware of what I don't know. I don't know how to hit it hard enough to get it over the net and not hard enough to, I just didn't know. It was just crazy. So if you follow that through, you start practicing, you know, you, you can apply this to musical instrument or any athletic thing. It's the same, same or, or learning ethical practice. You practice by the numbers. You follow the rules, you know, and you, you practice, practice. And pretty soon, you know, if you're Roger Federer, when you're playing in a match, you don't, you're not playing, but you don't barely have time to think. It's all reflex. It's all unconscious response. I mean, he has less than a second for the ball to come across the net. He has to not only hit it, but he has to get it in. And he has, he's fighting the other guy's mind. The other guy is saying, I gotta run him around, or I gotta make him come to the net. Or he's doing all that at once. You go to catch a fly ball, there's no ego there. You're just, you are watching the, the it's all in the, Unconscious competence. In in uh, Wu Wei, who was a was a um, Chinese Confucian, he talked about effortless perfection, effortless action. That effortless action is what we can cultivate. And so the precept practice is a practice which enables us to, to cultivate that. So the Buddha says, you know, what, oh, what kind of an individual is one who I would describe as being consummate in what is skillful, foremost in what is skillful? He's endowed with the right view of one beyond training the right view, the understanding of one unconsciously competent, beyond training, <clears throat> the right resolve of one beyond training, the right speech of one beyond training, right action, the right livelihood, the right effort, the right mindfulness, the right concentration, the right knowledge of one beyond training, and the right release of one beyond training. Such an individual I would regard as consummate. <coughs> so the idea is to practice recognizing, you know, look to the stories in our mind, look to the feeling in our body, our mindful awareness of tanha and its arising. The cessation of suffering is experienced in our ethical engagement. We're looking for the end of suffering. That's where we'll find it. Hachan Jumian, who's a monk, has a monastery in southern Thailand, says he's got this woman in his monastery who is a consummate jhana master. Really incredible. Still, she can close her eyes and say, I'll open them in eight hours, and eight hours later, the eyes come open. He says, but you know, when she's walking around, she's cranky. <laughs> so the cessation of suffering we experience in our daily lives, in our walking around lives, where we can practice our speech action and the way of being in the world. And, and sila practice becomes the practice of mindfulness in our daily life. So maybe we, 
have some time for questions or comments or thoughts, and, and there's a microphone that somebody wants to pass around <coughs> if you wish to. Please. Just a moment ago, when you read off that list of, it sounded like the Eightfold Path, there were two extras at the end, yes. knowledge and release. And I didn't understand The knowledge understand release, this. yeah. The knowledge, this it, it, is something that, that I found interesting. The Buddha talks about uh, the awakening process, and after the awakening moment, there's knowledge that awakening has happened. So if you wonder whether, whether, you've, whether you've, you've been enlightened You'll know, know. yes. If the answer is yes, well then it's yes. And if it's not so much, or working at it. Um, So right knowledge, uh, the right knowledge of one beyond training, and the right release of one. Release from the bonds of tanha, from the bonds of craving, from the bonds of... You know, the package, it's, it's not easy to do, and, you know, cause you can, but you can pick at it and it, it's helpful. There's a lot of talk about mindfulness mm-hmm. uh, today. When we uh, go to the original teachings, I've also heard that mindfulness in the Eightfold Path is in regard to mindfulness for the Eightfold Path. What was the Buddha's take on mindfulness? Well, what we have are uh, some suttas on mindfulness. Um, They were drafted a little bit later. and what we have described as uh, the foundations of mindfulness are basically the practices of paying attention to the experience of our body, of our feeling tone, of our mind states, and of particular uh, Dharma teachings to become aware of most specifically the hindrances and the factors of awakening. Mindfulness is the is uh, he talks about mindfulness, um, protective mindfulness. So he there's a great little image where he talks about a man walking through a briar patch is mindful of the thorns and steers clear of the thorns. Um, it's an awareness that the thorns will stick you, and you still steer clear. Mindfulness in in right in the sense of right mindfulness is mindfulness of what will make things worse, what you should avoid, like the thorns. Um, mindfulness is uh, mindfulness is a word that we reify. We turn it into something. There is real mindfulness. There's a whole range of things that we refer to mindfulness. I tend to think that the. I mean, my own take is that. The word mindfulness is not a specific thing that we can define operationally for purposes of measurement or agreement. It's a, it's a term that's used to refer to a certain kind of attention. Um, it's a caring attention because we're caring about our suffering. It's, a, it's attention to, to dukkha, to suffering. I mean, you can be aware of a scratch on the floor, but aware of a scratch on your arm is, there's a different visceral component. So mindfulness is a way of paying attention. This is not so much the Buddha's, I mean, I haven't talked to the Buddha uh, myself. I have read the accounts, and you know the accounts are just like a CNN tape. They're, if it's on the tape. <laughs> So, you know, this is, this is my take, um, or my version of the Buddha's take, my take on the Buddha's version. I don't know if that's helpful. It's a way of paying attention to uh, what gives rise to suffering for us. And it's not just, I, I wanted to read this because it's not just the monks and the nuns. This, I came across this in the Majjhima. 
um, somebody asks him, apart from, asks the Buddha, apart from you, is any and, and these uh, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis here, anybody else get it? <laughs> Pretty much, it's a long question, but but the the, uh, the Buddha says there's not only one one or one hundred or five hundred, but there are far more lay followers, my disciples, enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. It's a description of stream entry. That's something available to lay people. Beyond doubt, independent. We, we know for ourselves what the task is. Uproot tanha. Don't, don't get sucked in. Don't suffer with it to the extent that you can. It's, you know, to the extent that we can attenuate that, we'll appreciate the advice. <laughs> Anything else? Thank you guys for your attention. Oh yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.